0: I'm going to share some things today about Joseph that are a non-traditional view. They are in many ways uh, uh, characteristic of some rabbinic views, but sometimes as Christians we want to put Joseph really quite high because he had an amazing life and he is a type of Christ and so we, we, we don't want to see any negative things about him in, in, in some respects. But again, the interpretation of the life of Joseph that I'm about to give you is not a common Christian interpretation, and I don't know that I am right. I'm just giving you one particular interpretation. Many of us have heard other views on on Joseph and and his life, and so you can accept those views if you like. I'll just uh, give you one view today that that might be be, uh, uh, less conventional, and hopefully you'll take it in that regard. We are in Hebrews chapter 11. And in Hebrews chapter 11, the author is going through the men of faith and the women of faith, trying to use that as an indication for us, for, for the, the believers at that time, to hold on to their faith and to not, not give up in the midst of persecution. Because remember, these, these were Jews that had come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ as Savior, and they were thinking about going back into Jerusalem because the, the, the persecution was becoming so heavy. And so we are on on verse 22 of Hebrews chapter 11. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. That one sentence. By faith, Joseph, when he was dying, made mention of the exodus of the sons of Israel and gave orders concerning his bones. In the end, he came back to the Lord. He started out very close to the Lord. He started out hearing visions and seeing, seeing dreams, uh, seeing visions and dreams. Powerful man of God. But then when he was promoted into power, we see nothing of the visions, nothing of the dreams anymore. And we looked through this last week, but I'm going to reiterate again this week what became of this magnificent Joseph when he was put into this position of power. Let's look at a couple of items and I'll just roll through them quickly. You know, Joseph never made a trip back to see his family. There were seven years of plenty when he had plenty of power and he could have easily gone back. He never went back to check on their welfare. The harsh years start coming when the whole land goes into famine after, after that seventh year. The land goes into famine. He never went back to check on his family. He never sent anyone back to check on their welfare. When he finally finds out that Jacob is okay, his father, his aged father, he says, bring him to me. He didn't want to go back. He had, he had become Egyptianized. He didn't want his staff to see his weakness. He wanted them to leave the room when he was crying. He dressed that was in Genesis forty five one. He dressed like an Egyptian. Genesis forty two seven. He swore on the life of Pharaoh. He would swear on the life of Pharaoh twice. He did that in Genesis forty two verses fifteen and Genesis forty two verses sixteen. He said, "Am I not a man who can practice divination?" Even if said to mask who he was, it was an interesting thing for him to have said. He boasted of his being like a father to Pharaoh or godlike to Pharaoh. And that was in Genesis 45.8 and the practicing div- divination was in Genesis 44.15. He was really attached to, to, to the Egyptian culture. He never brought his sons to see Jacob until right at the time that Jacob was dying. And finally, he brought his son. He says, "I never thought I would see their face." He didn't live in Goshen with them. He had had the Egyptians weep for seventy days at the death of his father, which was an Egyptian practice. But we'll see more. So let, let's turn. Let's turn now to, to uh, uh, the the end of Genesis. The end of Genesis chapter forty-eight. The end of Genesis chapter forty-eight, and we'll we'll again review something that we saw last time. He's blessing the children of Joseph. He bypasses Joseph. He does everything for his children. He says, remember last time, he said, I'm going to take these two children are mine. He adopted them. He says, they are mine. They're going to be called by the children of Israel's names. He says, any other children you have can be yours, but they're going to be named after their brothers. They're not going to be forgotten from the Jewish kingdom. And then he said in verse 21 of Genesis 48, Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I'm about to die, but God will bring you. God will be with you and bring you back to the land of your fathers. So he says, God is going to be with you and he's going to bring you back to the land. You've never wanted to go, but he's going to bring you back. He knows that in the end, Joseph is going to turn. And had Joseph not turned in the end, we would never have reference to him in, in the chapter of faith in Hebrews chapter 11. Because remember, the New Testament is God's commentary on the Old Testament. And God can be very generous, even right at the end when Joseph turns. He says, I give you one portion more than your brothers, which I took from the hand of the Amorite, with my sword and my bow. Now, Genesis 49 is one of the hardest portions for translators to translate, because it's so poetic. This portion is where Jacob, or Israel, the man that God took his name, Jacob, and changed it to Israel, and he said, he, he, he calls his sons and he prays for his sons. He's blessing his sons, but he's also prophesying over them. Of his 12 sons, he only speaks to three of them in second person. The other ones, he only speaks of them in third person. There's only three that he speaks in second person. That's the first son, Reuben. He does the same with Judah, who he appoints as the leader of all his sons. And he does the same with Joseph. And I just want to point out a couple of them. I don't want to reflect on this. We'll, we'll do this when we study the, the book of Genesis, if, if we should do that, if the Lord should tarry and we get to that book. But he says he says uh, uh, in, in Genesis 49, verse 1, Then Jacob summoned his sons and said, Assemble yourselves that I may tell you what will befall you in the days to come. So he's going to speak now quite prophetically. In verse 2, gather together and hear, O sons of Jacob, and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn. So you see in second person, he's referring directly to him, speaking to him. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and and the beginning of my strength, preeminent in dignity and preeminent in power, uncontrollable as water. You shall not have preeminence because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. So he's making he, he's making reference he's making reference to uh, uh, his son Reuben. His son Reuben has slept with his concubine Bilhah. She had already given birth to two of Reuben's brothers, two of Reuben's half brothers, Daniel and Naphtali. And he went up to her bed and he slept with her. This was his father's concubine. And it says, Jacob heard about it. But he said nothing. But now, 30 years later, or 40 years later, he says, because of that, you went up to my bed, you will not have preeminence. You are the oldest son, you should have preeminence, but you're not going to have it because you went up to my bed. Something that happened 30 years ago is going to judge you. And we are seeing that in our culture today like we've never seen it before. People who did things 30 and 40 years ago Things that they did are coming back to haunt them in their careers. We may think we get away with things, but we really don't. Reuben may have thought he got away with it because his father never said anything at the time. But 30 or 40 years later, his father curses him in the sense that he says that that, that uh, you defile my couch. You're uncontrollable as water. You should have preeminence, but you went up to your father's bed. This is why we need to learn to repent. None of us is beyond doing lots of things wrong. And I see all the things hitting people today from things that they did 30 years ago. And you may think, oh, good, they deserve this. Well, let me tell you something. There's a whole lot of trash in my life that happened 30 years ago and happened 40 years ago that I'm glad people are not bringing up. That I'm glad people didn't have a lot of cameras around. And when you get to be older, you're going to be glad that there, not everything was recorded for people to bring back. Because nobody's life is clean. And this is why we have times of repentance before the Lord. And we take these things seriously. Then he goes down in verse 8. He Again, in second person, he refers directly to Judah. Judah, your brothers shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons shall bow down to you. So you see, remember, Joseph thought oh, all the sons are going to bow down to me, and that happened, and it's going to happen again. But he says, when it comes to the leading of Israel, Joseph, it's it's not going to be Joseph, it's going to be Judah. Judah was the one, and Judah had all sorts of sin in his life. We see it, and it's exposed. But what Judah did is he sacrificed himself for his brother Benjamin and said that he would go as a slave in Egypt to free Benjamin. He says in verse 10, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the rulers nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, so you see, he appoints that it's going to be through Judah that the scepter will come. And Jesus was from the tribe of Judah. We see even the fulfillment of this in Jesus. And then further on down, he speaks of Joseph. He starts. He says, Joseph is a fruitful bow, a fruitful bow by a spring; its branches run over. But then he, it, it's in verse 25 that he says, From the God of your father, who helps you. So now he's speaking in second person. He's directing it directly to Joseph. But Joseph no longer had preeminence. The children were going to bow down to Judah when it came to the kingdom of Israel. He was going to have preeminence. Joseph may have preeminence in Egypt. He's not going to have preeminence when it comes to the tribes of Israel. After he finishes this prophecy over his 12 sons, what does he do? In verse 33 of Genesis 49, when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into the bed and breathes his last and was gathered to his people. Think about how calculated this is. He prophesies over each one of his children. He finishes this chapter of prophecy over each one of the twelve. He draws his feet into the bed and breathes his last. Now, we had gone through the life of Jacob and all the things that he did and how in the end he came back to the Lord and how he was really touched by the Lord. And he talks about about so much about Abraham and Isaac and he understands the kingdom of God and the Lord very generously in the book of Hebrews and it speaks highly of him. Now in the end of of, uh, uh, Jacob's life, it says that he drew his feet into his bed and he breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. He was gathered to his people. The same expression was given of, of Abraham in Genesis 25, 7. But it also said of Abraham, he died at a ripe old age, an old man satisfied with life. You see that in Abraham, there was a lot more glory in this. Jacob had a very hard life as we saw because he had lived a life of deception. So he himself was greatly deceived in return as we saw. Isaac, it says in Genesis thirty-five twenty-eight, he died an old man of ripe age. You don't see that expression here of Jacob. Jacob described his own life to Pharaoh as being a very hard life and how deception brings hardness. But when Jacob finished charging his sons, he drew his feet into his bed and breathed his last and he was gathered to his people. So in the end, he was gathered to his people, the same expression that it had used of Abraham. There was this gathering to his people. Now let's turn to Genesis chapter 50 verse 1. Then Joseph fell on his father's, fa- father's face and wept over him and kissed him. Joseph commanded his servants, the physicians, to embalm his father. So the physicians embalmed Israel. Now, 40 days were required for it, for such is the period required for embalming. And the Egyptians wept for him 70, 70 days. This is not a Jewish cu- custom. This is an Egyptian custom. Joseph had become Egyptianized. And he had the physicians embalm him, which may well have been because he knew he had to transfer, transport his father back to to uh, uh, to be buried in the promised land in, in, in Hebron. When the days of mourning for him were passed, Joseph spoke to the household of Pharaoh saying, if now I have found favor in your sight, please speak to Pharaoh saying, my father made me swear saying, behold, I am about to die in my grave, uh, die in my grave, which I dug for myself in the land of Canaan. There you shall bury me. Now therefore, please let me go up and bury my father. Then I will return. Pharaoh said, go up and bury your father as he made you swear. Now, maybe Joseph, maybe uh um, Jacob had made Joseph swear so that he could use this with Pharaoh. Pharaoh said, Go ahead and fulfill what you swore to your father. Conveniently Joseph didn't tell Pharaoh, My father said, do not bury me here in Egypt. He wanted nothing to do with his bones residing in Egypt. But you see how he's appealing to Pharaoh. He's appealing to Pharaoh, he says, If now I have found favour in your sight, previously he had spoken of Pharaoh, that I am like a father to him. It doesn't seem to be the same now. He's appealing to Pharaoh in a little bit different way. There were the seven years of plenty, the seven years of famine, and then seventeen years now that, that uh, uh Jacob had lived in Egypt. Maybe the the relationship has changed a little bit. We don't know for sure, but there's further hints on down. In verse 7, "...so Joseph went to bury his father, and with him went up all the servants of Pharaoh, the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt, and all the household of Joseph, and his brothers, and his father's household. They left only their little ones, and their flocks, and their herds in the land of Goshen. There also went up with him both chariots and horsemen, and it was a very great company." So Joseph, he's in charge of the funeral procession to take his father back from Egypt, his bones back from Egypt, his body back from Egypt. And remember his father said, you shall carry me to my grave by, by, by Mamre by in Hebron. You shall carry me there. And they carried him there, as we'll see. His 12 sons carried him, plus the two sons Ephraim and Manasseh. But you see, it is a great company who goes. With him went up all the servants of Pharaoh. I mean, how many is that? How many servants does a Pharaoh have? I'm sure it's more than two. I mean, is it hundreds? Is it many hundreds of people? All the servants of Pharaoh, all the, el- the elders of the household, and all the elders of the land of Egypt. So all the elders from the land of Egypt are coming. And then, then he, it, it says that with him is all the, 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 the people of the household of Joseph and his brothers and his father's household. Remember, they came into there with about 75 people. And now they're 17 years later, so that's 75, may, maybe 200 by now. But their little ones didn't go, but there were some that were little ones that have now grown up. So let's just say maybe it's 100 of them, plus you have chariots and horsemen. The only people that they left were their little ones and their flocks. And this gives the Egyptians a clue. If you want to make sure the Jews come back, the Hebrews come back, you keep their flocks and their little ones here. And the next Pharaoh is going to learn that. And that's when when Moses is going to eventually come in 400 years and say, let me go. He says, okay, you guys can go, but leave your little ones and your animals here. He goes, and they send with them horsemen and chariots. What is that for? Is it for their protection? Or is it to make sure that they come back? Here's another telling verse. Verse 10. When they came to the threshing floor of Atad which is beyond the Jordan, they lamented there with a very great and sorrowful lamentation. And he observed seven days mourning for his father. Now when the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, saw the mourning at the threshing floor of Atad, they said, this is a grievous mourning for the Egyptians. Therefore it was named Abel-Mizerin and is beyond the Jordan. Look at what Joseph did. His father wanted to send him back into the land, through the land. You go up through the land want you to go up from Egypt. He made him swear, you're going to go up from Egypt, which is over here, and you're going to go back to the land and bury me right there in Hebron. He thought, if my sons go back through the land, and Joseph goes back through the land, that may induce him to understand how important the land is. Remember the covenants to Abraham, the covenant of circumcision and the covenant of the land. He wanted them to see the land. He wanted his other sons not to forget that land. They had already been in Egypt 17 years Plenty of time to forget. You see, many international students come to the United States that want nothing to do with their home country after after a few years. And they're in fact, they're often ashamed of it because they become Americanized. He had become Egyptianized. Now look at what he did. He didn't go straight to Hebron. He went down around the Dead Sea and back up on the other side of the Jordan River. That's what it says. He says, which is beyond the Jordan. Means on the other side of the Jordan. That's, in, that's in, uh, in verse 11, the end of verse 11. So what they did, they follow actually the route that the children of Israel are going to follow when they 400 years later go into the land. They should have gone up this way, but their disobedience brought them that way. That's the way Joseph goes. Why? Could it be that he didn't want to pass through this land? Could it be that he didn't want to go through Beersheba, where so many of the uh, of Abraham and Isaac lived? Could it be that he didn't want to go? So he came up around and then down here, seeing as little of the land as possible, and then back around. That's what he did. Is that another indication? We don't know for sure, but it is a very unusual route to go. Very unusual. And the southern part is a harder part because it's more desert. It's a very hard part to have to walk through. It is much easier to go through that land, that, that land of Canaan than to go all the way down around the Dead Sea and back up again. But that's the route they took. Verse 12. Thus his sons did for him as he had charged them. For his sons carried him to the land of Canaan and buried him in the cave of the field of Machpelah before Mamre, which Abraham had bought along with the field for a burial site from Ephron the Hittite. So remember, Abraham and Sarah. Were buried there. Isaac and Rebecca were buried there. Jacob is going to be buried there now, along with Leah. He didn't bury Rachel there, although she died not far from there, because she was an idol worshipper. She stole her father's idols and lied about it, which resulted in her early death. She had Jacob had had to tell her, "Put away your idols." Interesting. He didn't allow the idol worshipper, though he loved her. She wouldn't give up her idols. She was never buried there. And and uh, uh, so he buried his father. They carried him. So you have fourteen. You have his twelve sons plus two grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh, carrying him. Joseph has to carry him too. This great leader in Egypt has to put his shoulder underneath that coffin and help to carry it all that distance. Why wouldn't they take the shortest route, carrying that coffin? It's quite telling. Does he not want to go through that land? When you touch the world, are you afraid to go back into the things of God? Are you afraid to go back into a church once you've lived in the world? So he says in in verse 14, and after that he had buried his father. Joseph returned to Egypt, he and his brothers, and all who had gone up with him to bury his father. When Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, What if Joseph bears a grudge against us and pays us back in full for the wrong with which which we did to him? So they sent a message to Joseph saying, Your father charged before he died saying, Thus you shall say to Joseph, Please forgive, I beg you, the transgressions, the transgressions of your brothers and their sin, for they did you wrong. Now, they're lying. He never said that. Their father never said that, but they're taking their father's name. and They're saying, our father told us to tell you this. That's not even the way that Jacob spoke to Joseph. This is not a, please forgive, I beg you. Remember what he said to Joseph? He said, bury me over there. Swear it. Remember, Joseph tried to get his hands to reverse. He said, no, 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 my son, I'm not going to do that. So his sons do this because they think now Joseph's going to reward them for the wrong. And so then they come. So they sent a message to Joseph. Why do they have to send a message to Joseph? Because the Hebrews live up in the land of Goshen. That's not where Joseph lived. Joseph lived down in the palace of, of Pharaoh. And then, he's, then they go to him and they, 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 they say, And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. Look at what they say. They can't say, please forgive us our transgressions by the name of your God. Because Joseph has disowned this God, it seems like. They're not using the name of Joseph's God. They're not using the name of their own God because they weren't particularly good folks either. But they said, by the God of our Father. Please forgive the transgressions of the servants of the God of your Father. And Joseph wept when they spoke to him. Then his brothers also came and fell down before him. Again, they're falling down before him, analogous to Joseph's prophecy that he had when he was just a young man. In Egypt, they're going to fall before him. But remember, in the kingdom, everything is going to go through that tribe of Judah. Behold, we are your servants. But Joseph said to them, do not be afraid for am I in God's place as for you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good in order to bring about this present result to preserve many people alive. That's a, that's a very noble thing to say. And, uh, and he comforted them with that. And it says, so therefore, do not be afraid. I will provide for you and your little ones. So he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. What he said in verse 21, so therefore do not be afraid. That term do not be afraid is almost always in the book of Genesis used by God saying do not be afraid. It's God who says do not be afraid. Joseph says to them do not be afraid. He has this seniority and he's exercising this seniority. He says I will provide for you and your little ones. I will provide for you. In other words I will continue to take the state, Egypt's Food and I will provide for you. This is 17 years since uh, uh, his father and the family had come into the land. If they came into the land, say three years into the famine period, so that that would mean that that there's uh, four more years left of famine. So there are at least 12 or 13 years since the famine has been over, and he's still providing for his family you think wow that's a really great thing well let's, let's just look back at a second at, at, at one verse here in, in, uh, in Genesis 47 in Genesis 47 that we had read before uh, well well let, let's look at, at, at Genesis 47 verse 19 he had enslaved Joseph had enslaved all of Egypt everyone in Egypt became Pharaoh slaves when their food ran out they had given 20% of the proceeds for seven years. Then their food ran out during the times of famine, and Joseph didn't just give them food back. He said, first give me your land, then give me your very selves. In verse 19 to 47, why should we die before your eyes, both we and our land? Both we and our land. Buy us and our land for food, and we and our land will be slaves to Pharaoh. So give us seed that we may live and not die, and that the land may not be desolate. Joseph had enslaved all of the residents of Egypt and their land belonged to Pharaoh. That was his way of negotiating, to give them food. He was a pretty tough guy. Now in verse 27 of Genesis 47, Now Israel lived in Egypt in the land of Goshen, and they acquired property in it and were fruitful and became very numerous. His own family was in the land of Goshen. They could own property. And they became fruitful. And they were very numerous. And so then let's go back to Genesis chapter 50 and look at that portion that we we were talking about. He said to them, I will provide for you and for your little ones. He's continuing to provide for them. And if somebody provides for you, you get used to it. If a minority comes into a land and within a few decades owns the entire land and sets it up really well for themselves, and the masses of people are enslaved and have nothing, you're going to have great social unrest. And that's exactly what they see. It's not long after this that another pharaoh rises and they see these Jews just populating and owning everything, and the Egyptians, the locals, having nothing, and it's going to cause the Jews to become enslaved because these people are going to rise up against them. You just see socioeconomics happening before your eyes right here. By saying, I will provide for you, his brothers are now dependent upon him. Their whole families are dependent upon him. He again has control. The very thing that he wanted, he again got control. They're dependent upon him. Why didn't, why didn't he say, now farm the land, till the land, and make it fruitful? You guys know how to do that. You guys know how, to, you guys are shepherds. You can take care of this. If you make a person dependent, you own them. And he knew that. Why didn't he say, go back to the land now? It's all over. Go back to the land. No, he wanted them dependent right there. Now, Joseph stayed in Egypt, he and his father's house. This is in Genesis 50, verse 22, his father's household. And Joseph lived 110 years. Joseph saw the third generation of Ephraim's sons, also the sons of Machir, the son of Manasseh were born on Joseph's knees. Joseph said to his brothers, and, and this is what is grabbed in the New Testament in Hebrews 11. I am about to die, but God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land to the land which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now he invokes Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He understands the land and the promise to the, to the fathers. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and the land. That one thing, in the end, as he's about to die, he remembers it. He says, the Lord's going to take you back. Verse 25, Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and you shall carry my bones up from here. You shall carry my bones up from here. Remember we read last time, his father prophesied over him. He says, I'm going to give you one more portion. That word portion means shechem, is is really the word shechem. And where was he buried 400 years later? In Shechem. And Shechem wasn't the most glorious of cities. That is the city that, that Jacob's daughter Dinah was raped in. That is the city that Joseph went to when he became, when he became enslaved and lost. And, and that is the city that his brothers wiped out an entire city, a, a village of men. And then his other brothers looted it. Why didn't he go back? Why didn't they take his bones back at that time? Maybe they weren't able to. Maybe they had already become odious in the eyes of the Egyptians by this time. Maybe things had already started to turn because the Jews were becoming very prosperous and all the Egyptians were enslaved to Pharaoh and had nothing. All their land was gone and the Jews were becoming very prosperous. Verse 26, So Joseph died at the age of 110 years and he was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt. Period. Nothing. Nothing. No state funeral, no weeping by the sons of Israel, nothing. He died, he was embalmed and placed in a coffin, period. And the book of Genesis ends in Egypt. Not a happy ending, nothing. What about the great Joseph who had saved all of Egypt? Well, he had enslaved all of Egypt as well. And they forgot him very, very quickly. He was embalmed and they left his bones. No state funeral. No 70 days of weeping. No even the, the, the routine weeping of, of the Jews over him. Nothing. Nothing. That's why I say God is very generous in the New Testament. To take that one thing that he said at the end of his life and to say he's a man of faith. God is very generous with us, thankfully. The beautiful thing about the scriptures is we get to see people. And when we see them, we see that their lives are not very good in scripture. And it gives me hope. That gives me hope. We are quickly forgotten when we die. You know, we we, we think, you know, I'm going to get this great job, I'll be CEO of this company, I'll do all these great things. I mean, in a few years after that, you are forgotten. I mean, just forgotten. I've seen it over and over again. On the Rice University campus, the biggest name—the biggest name—back in 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 the 90s and 2000s, the biggest name was Rick Smalley. He won the Nobel Prize. Bob Curl won it, but Rick Smalley was really the driving force behind, you know, just pushing this this thing. You ask students coming in today, what do you think of Rick Smalley? They'll say, Rick who? They don't even know him. I mean, he was the biggest name on campus. He died in 2005. Nobody even remembers them, except a few chemists. And in a few years, the chemists will even forget them. People are forgotten. It says in James chapter 4, verse 4, You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? If you desire, if you desire, if you wish to be friends with the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. You try to slip back into the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. It says, if you desire, if you wish to be friends of the world, you don't even have to do it. If Even if you wish to be friends of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. It's not like God says, you are my enemy. No, you make yourself an enemy of God. That's what it says in James chapter 4, verse 4. We are quickly forgotten. Let me tell you what, what for the rest of us, what our funerals will be like. Tell you what, what what's going to happen on the day of your funeral, all right? So, so they're going to have your funeral, and and you know they're going to have a gathering at some church or something, and then they'll go out to the burial site, and there's invariably some guys that are standing around, and they are so hungry, and they know that when they get back to the house there, they're going to be serving some food. There's a couple guys standing there, and and they're like, oh, boy, I am starving, man, man, I was hoping to play golf today, and you know we got to be here, and. And, uh, uh, hey, pass that potato salad. I am starving. Boy, this is a good potato salad. Too bad about old, uh, what's his name? And boom, you are forgotten just like that. That's how quickly you are forgotten. The treasure that we have in God is the thing that outlasts us. All the great things we did. And I see all these powerful professors as they get old and they're, hands start shaking and they can barely people who's this guy I mean in his day he was powerful I remember seeing these professors just you know pounding on the table at faculty meetings like they were running this show and I was just a little assistant professor and these guys get older and they have a stroke and then they just kind of sit there and drool and there's not much there quickly passes away I'm being very honest with you quickly passes away This man was so great in Egypt, second only to Pharaoh, like a father to Pharaoh. And in the end, there was no state funeral for him. There was no weeping for him, nothing referenced. If it happened, God didn't think of it as significant because he didn't have it recorded. Remember, every word in the Bible means something. And every word that is missing means something. No funeral for him. Just embalm him, stick him in the coffin. Just like that. Just like that. And he's going to sit there in that coffin above ground for 400 years before they stick that thing on a cart and bring it to Shechem 400 years later. Because he made them promise to do that. Just remember, we serve God and we honor him. Things in the end will be forgotten. Serve God here on earth. The things of this world pass away. Don't make yourself an enemy with God. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word, for the truth of your word. And I pray, my Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you would draw these young people to yourself, that they would see the treasure in knowing you that they would never slip into the world, for those that know you, that they would love you and honor you. Father, have mercy on them, I pray. And Father, for those that don't know you, Father, save their souls, that this very day they would say, Lord, forgive me because I am a sinner and come into my life. Forgive me, Lord. Father, your mercy on these young people, I pray, for the glory of Jesus. Amen.